0: On April 19th, 2021, humanity made history with the Ingenuity Rotorcraft as the first successful powered flight on another planet. And soon, spacecraft will take to the skies in space again, this time on another planetary body, Saturn's largest moon, Titan. This objective is part of a mission called Dragonfly, which is led by the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory and collaborated on by engineers, scientists, and managers from several other institutions, including Several NASA centers, Penn State University, and Lockheed Martin, just to name a few. A Dragonfly is a rotorcraft which will be equipped with various instruments for studying the atmospheric and surface properties on Titan. Now, similar to the Mars rovers, instead of relying on solar panels, Dragonfly will be powered by an MMRTG, which stands for a multi mission radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Try saying that five times fast. MMRTGs convert the heat from the natural decay of radioisotope materials into electricity. And this provides a very durable power solution not only for standard housekeeping and scientific operations, but also for having the resources necessary to provide sustained flight over a long period of time. Now, with its flight capabilities, Dragonfly will be able to travel over 40 kilometers, or 25 miles for you non metric folk, in one single day on Titan, which is about 16 days for us here on Earth. Now this is a significant distance for a spacecraft to travel in such a short period of time, and in fact, it's farther than any rover has been able to travel on Mars in a decade. And Dragonfly is going to travel this distance several times over its baselined 2.7 year mission lifetime to various places. In the grand scale of things, that range is fantastic, and the amount of diverse studies that will be able to come from this mission is really exciting to think about. Now apart from flight on another moon just being an incredible engineering feat in and of itself, what makes this mission important, and why should we care? Well, one thing that makes Dragonfly significant is that it will serve as a gateway for new scientific discoveries on Titan, some of which scientists hope will provide evidence of life beyond Earth. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Titan, one reason why it's become such an important body to study is due to the presence of a liquid ocean beneath its surface, which is composed of water and ammonia, but more so water. And scientists have also found traces of stable liquid hydrocarbons on its surface, which, apart from Earth, makes this the only other place in our solar system where a stable surface liquid has been found. So scientists are hopeful that we can find life in its subsurface ocean, but to quote NASA's Wiki page on Titan, we may also discover life as we don't know it in these hydrocarbon lakes. Now, to date, some of the most informative data that we have on Titan was collected by the Cassini spacecraft and the Huygens probe, which was deployed from Cassini into Titan's atmosphere over 16 years ago in January of 2005. Given that, it's incredibly exciting that we have the opportunity to enter Titan's atmosphere again and explore this moon with several instruments and more advanced technology over the course of a few years, as opposed to the few short hours that we had to communicate with the Huygens probe. Now, developing a spacecraft to study Titan, whether it be a lander, rover, or an orbiting platform is one thing. But to make it a rotorcraft introduces a whole new set of complexities, because now you not only have to deal with the typical design challenges of a spacecraft, but you now also have to account for the aerodynamic and aeromechanical challenges that come with flying, and make sure that all of this blends together in one system. And after taking a course on rotorcraft in grad school, I was itching to talk to someone about planetary rotorcraft and make it into an episode. And I was incredibly fortunate to get that opportunity. So today's interview is all about the flight dynamics of Dragonfly and how the spacecraft is being designed to fly in the dense nitrogen atmosphere on Titan. This interview was so fun to record and I'm excited to share it with you all. And with that, hello and welcome to another episode of the Art of Space Engineering podcast which explores the details behind how spacecraft payloads and missions as a whole come together, and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and in today's episode, I chat with Dr. Jack Langelan, who is part of a team of engineers from Penn State University, leading the design of Dragonfly's aerodynamics, flight controls, and aeromechanics. Dr. Langelan is an assistant professor at Penn State whose research focuses on flight planning and control algorithms for autonomous systems. So, this interview will provide an introduction into the challenges that come with designing a planetary rotorcraft. And not only that, but allowing it to operate autonomously given that Titan is a billion miles away from Earth. Now, that may sound like an exaggeration, but it's actually not. So, for one, what do operations look like for a spacecraft like this? What challenges do engineers have to face in designing Dragonfly to be aerodynamic, and what mechanical challenges are coupled with that? And finally, how do you even test something like this so that you are 100% confident that it will work on Titan when it gets there? Now to me, this mission is incredibly cool, and I am excited to track its progress over the years until the scheduled launch in 2027 and its arrival at Titan in 2036. When Ingenuity did its flight experiments on Mars, it captured the world. And I hope that both of these spacecraft are the start of what will hopefully be a very fruitful future of aviation in space. And now, without further ado, I now happily present my conversation with Dr. Jack Longalon. So, um, like I was telling you, I I, I read the... um, the paper on the energetics of of Dragonfly that you guys wrote uh, a few years back. And um, I took a class on just general rotorcraft aerodynamics, which kind of covers the basic requirements of of helicopters. Uh, So like we go into power and um, power requirements and then how you have to design that into a helicopter accounting for like drag and all of the other like aerodynamic moments acting on the vehicle. And at the same time, like ingenuity was landing on, uh, on Mars and doing its first flights. So it was really cool to see, to, to be learning about rotorcraft and then like see all of that. And so that kind of, um, like I'm a space person, but I like aerodynamics. And so now it's kind of like, Oh, I can have my cake and eat it too. Uh, and so I'm, I kind of gained a lot of interest in, um, just planetary rotorcraft in general, so I'm I'm really excited to to hear a lot more about Dragonfly and um, what you guys have learned and trying to fly on Titan. So thank you very much for.
1: Well, you're welcome. Yeah. So I, I'm an I'm fundamentally an airplane guy, but I like <laughs> spacecraft, right? So this is my chance to be an airplane guy, but get to work on on planetary exploration. So so I'm the approaching the thing from the other side from where you're approaching it, which is cool. <laughs>
0: um. Yeah, I guess not a lot of people can say that. This, yeah. But it, it it's going to become, I guess, with ingenuity and Dragonfly. Hopefully, it'll become more of a more of a common thing. Yeah, it would be cool. Um, so I, I guess to to start, I'm always curious about people's backgrounds and how they found their their niche in engineering and and what they like to do. Because I like, I guess, I have a the problem where I just think everything is cool, and so I never really kind of found that that super sweet spot. Um, but so I guess with, with that, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got, uh, why you chose like working on rotorcraft specifically and, uh, how you ended up at Penn state?
1: Okay, sure. So I, I've always, always like since age three loved airplanes. <laughs> um, and, uh, And so i guess i always knew that that i was going to be doing something to do with airplanes uh if if i'd been fortunate enough to have perfect vision i would have you know tried to join the air force and and been a pilot uh but i don't i wear very thick glasses and so the the pilot route was closed off Uh, and so the next best thing was was going to be the engineering side of things um and uh so i Grew up in Canada, I uh, went to college in Canada, I did, did something called engineering physics in undergrad, uh, was not really very good at that and still I managed to squeak my way into grad school for aerospace engineering um, and then finished a master's degree and then uh, that was at the University of Washington in Seattle, a uh, great place to, to live for, for several years uh, and, and go to school. And then I went back to Canada, I was in Toronto working at a company that then was called de Havilland uh, and then it became Bombardier Aerospace. And there I worked on uh, the Dash 8 Q400 turboprop. I worked on the Global Express business jet and on the RJ 700 regional jet. Um, And then decided it was time to go back to school and do a PhD, not really knowing exactly what it was that I was gonna do after the PhD, right? I, I went back because I looked at all the people that had the jobs that I think that I thought I might want to have, uh, and they all had PhDs. Uh, and so that was okay. I guess I better go back and do a PhD. Um, so I was at Stanford for almost six years working on my PhD and then, uh, you know, got lucky and, and and got this job at Penn State. Uh, and, and I'm here as an aircraft controls person. Um, so when I was at Bombardier, I was more of a structures and acoustics person. Uh, and then from a PhD, I, I sort of transitioned into a controls and flight planning sort of a world. Um, and at Penn State, my research has mostly to do with uh, flight planning and flight controls for unmanned aircraft. Um, we were working both with, you know, fixed wing airplanes, uh, basically getting to, f- to find and exploit energy and atmosphere the way that we see eagles and turkey vultures and hawks fly. Um, and that was really cool and worked great. Um, and then uh, I got into the rotorcraft world because Penn State has, for the past 30 years or so, had a, a vertical research center of excellence. It's one of three in the country where we do a lot of work really focused on, on development of uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So initially that was really mostly rotorcraft helicopters. Um, and now it's any kind of, of vectored thrust, vertical lift type type of aircraft and compound aircraft. Um, and uh, and so that's how I got into the sort of controls for the rotorcraft world, uh, and I started teaching aircraft design here at Penn State, and so that's how sort of the, the design aspects of, of all these vehicles kind of came into sort of my sort of career path, I guess you could call it. Um, and uh, yeah, so here I am, you know, kind of doing a combination of, sort of flight controls and flight planning for both fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft, and, you know, teaching uh, undergrad students how to handle the design of these aircraft.
0: Nice. And how did, um, or well, I guess I'll back up. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I think it's cool that, like, your career took a, you know, different trajectories um, at least from like a kind of recent grad standpoint. Um, you know, when you enter the world, it always feels like you have to, you know, find the right job and and um, find the thing that you really like to do. And there's a lot of, I guess, maybe internal pressure to do that, or at least, at least for me. So it's, I always think it's cool to see how people's careers have kind of shifted in different directions over time, just based on, um, you know, based on how things kind of, fell into place or, or what they they found that they loved throughout doing other things. So I think it's- Yeah,
1: it. and so like the one thing, like students often think that, you know, especially someone who's starting grad school, someone might think that, that, okay, whatever I do for my master's thesis is the thing I'm gonna be spending the rest of my career doing, right? Which is completely not the case as it turns out. <laughs> um, so my master's thesis was about aircraft structures. I started working as an aircraft structures guy, right? And after a couple of years, you know, the, the company decided they needed a couple of more people in the acoustics group, and they said, hmm, Jack, you know, we think you can figure this out. So here's the book, and you are now an acoustics guy. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's how things go sometimes. Uh, and you see these sort of pretty big changes in career trajectory for people. I've got friends who went from being sort of airplane people to rocket people, uh, back to airplane people, and now back to being a rocket person. <laughs> um and, and so there's a whole lot of sort of changes in career that can happen. And that's sort of what makes uh, any career in engineering really cool, right? A lot of times the fact that you can go and do all these different things within the space, um, the fact that you're working often almost all the time on these big projects with lots and lots of people, right? There, there, there's this myth that an engineer spends their entire career sitting in a cubicle surrounded by, by padded walls, right? That's not yeah. at all <laughs> true, right? We spend most of our time working in large teams of people all trying to achieve some kind of big common goal. Right. So it really is a sort of a team experience to be working as an engineer.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, that's definitely why I, I like it so much. Um, So how did the uh, collaboration with APL on Dragonfly come into place?
1: So, Back in about 2016, uh, I I guess, so I think for for several years, uh, you know, planetary scientists have been thinking about doing aerial exploration of of places like Titan, right, and and Mars as well. There's a long history of of proposals and pre-proposals and ideas for how to go and explore these places using things that fly. Um, And in about 2016, when the sort of talk of the the sort of next, what was gonna be the next New Frontiers program started to come up, the the idea came up again, right? At APL, Uh, Ralph Lawrence, I think was one of the major drivers of the thing, certainly in the early days and and ZB Turtle, right? Early days, uh, they were driving it. Um, And they contacted Penn State because we're one of the Vertical Lift Research Centers of Excellence, right? And they they already had the idea of, hey, we wanna take a rotorcraft to go and explore Titan with it. Um, can we do it? How do we make this work? Right? What's sort of the feasibility, and what would something like this look like? Right? And and would we be interested in working on something like this with them? Right? And of course, the answer is heck yes. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this sounds great. We're into it. Um, and and so that's really how the the kind of collaboration with them started out. Um, right. So in the early days, it was you know three of us here at Penn State and and six or eight folks over at APL and that slowly grew into a, into a, a large project. Cool right. And so early days was really all about okay, so we know what Titan's atmosphere looks like. We know its density, right? We know the gravity, the gravitational force on Titan. Um, what would a rotorcraft on Titan look like? How it be different from what what we do here on Earth and what are the implications for for flight over there?
0: In that, um, what exactly are you guys? looking at in terms of, of the design part, I think the, I'm gonna see if I get all of them, the website <laughs> said, uh, flight planning, flight control, the aeromechanics, um, and then the aerodynamics of of flight.
1: Yeah, those those are kind of the large-ish ones, right? Um, certainly, initially, it all comes down to uh, power required to fly. Right, and how much energy you can carry with you on board the vehicle. Right, um, and and those two things together are the the things that that, that then end up feeding into the flight planning. Flight control has, is is affected even by that layer of stuff. Right, um, and sort of the this is might be going into the weeds a little bit too much for this part. Right, so we can always go back and let me know. Um, but so so titan has a very low gravity it has a very high atmospheric density right so you put those two things together and 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 you can take a vehicle that you know can hover here on earth when you take it to titan it would take 140th of the power to hover that that aircraft on on titan okay Um, those same equations that tell us about all that stuff they also tell us that hey here on earth a jet pack is really really hard to make work Right, because we want to have a jetpack that has small little rotors. Well, that means that the energy, or the power you need to fly with this little rotor is going to be really high, which means your fuel consumption is high. Right, so that's why jetpacks are difficult on Earth. On Titan, something like a jetpack would be comparatively forty times easier to create than here on Earth. Um, so we've got sort of some some sort of limits on on what we can fit into the rocket that would take us to Titan, right so that puts some constraints on the vehicle um we've got constraints because we know that scientists want to carry certain kinds of payload right so that that kind of helps define what the, the sort of payload weight is going to be that we're carrying around um and then you put all those things together and and, and you can Set up a create a vehicle that that can fly on Titan, and you'll have a pretty good idea of how far you can go on a single charge, right? So so Dragonfly on Titan, when we're actually flying, we're flying based on battery power, um, and then we can recharge the battery using this this multi-mission radioisotope thermal generator, basically a you know a small power heat source um, uh, that you know, we we can use thermoelectrics to pull electricity out of it. Um, and, and so kind of from there, right, then you can start delving into sort of all the, the various rabbit holes that you have to go down to do the the kind of further design process for, for the flight vehicle.
0: One thing that you brought up was flight planning. Um, since Dragonfly is like fully autonomous, uh, since, you know, it's, it's many, you know, millions of miles away, um, I guess, what does that mean for for dragonfly is that um kind of saying okay if this is the you know type of min- um or if we want to fly from point a to point b and we're simulating that what does that look like in terms of um controls or
1: yes yeah, so there's a couple, couple of bits that sense. show up in there right um the so you're absolutely right like titans really 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 far away it takes takes one and a half to two hours for, for a signal to get from Earth to Titan. So the round trip time is roughly three hours. Um, there is no possible way that a human could actually control dragonfly from here on Earth. Um, so all we can really do is tell dragonfly, hey, I want you to fly from where you are right now to our next science location. And that science location is located you know, at, at some latitude and longitude compared, you know, on the planet. Um, and, and then, you know, so we send that signal to Dragonfly. Dragonfly will receive the signal, go through all kinds of checks to say, is it safe for me to fly right now? That would include things like, is it very windy right now? Um, what direction is the wind coming from? Is it raining methane right now? Yes or no, right? So all these kind of flight safety checks happen. If Dragonfly decides that it's safe to fly, then it prepares itself for the flight, okay? So it makes sure it's got a full charge of batteries, so it's ready to go. It checks all of its navigation systems to make sure they're operational, right? So it goes through all the the, the pre-flight checks that a human would go through before taking off with a 747 full of of passengers, right? All those same sorts of things we'll be doing uh, on Dragonfly automatically, okay? Um, And then Dragonfly would prepare itself for flight, take off, go through, really a standard, what we would set up as being its standard flight profile, um, fly towards its, its destination. And, and right now, sort of the way that we set things up with one of its flight to a destination, we always wanna make sure that we have a place that we can land that we know is safe, okay? So that means that, that every time we fly, we have already a pre-surveyed, pre-scouted landing site that uh, where we're actually planning on landing. Okay. So we take off, we fly, we overfly that landing site, go past it for a ways, survey out the landing site for the next flight. And then we come back and touch down at our desired you know, science target. Um, and then we touch down. Right. Everything shuts down. We go through our post flight checks. We send a message back to Earth that says, hey, I'm here. I made it. I'm safe. Right. Um, that whole flight process takes roughly half an hour. Okay. So on earth, we send a message to dragonfly, tell it to go do its thing. Right. Dragonfly does its thing. And then a message comes back to earth roughly three and a half hours later. Right. So three hours for the round trip time, plus a half hour for flight time saying, Hey, I'm safe. I've made it. Um, and out of that three and a half hours, Dragonfly's only actually been flying for about half an hour of that whole process. Okay. So the, the sort of the the ability for dragonfly to go through all those checks by itself right and it's 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 very procedural right um, mm-hmm. it, um all those things right it's it's a very kind of strict list of things that dragonfly will go through to to, to get it to fly um and uh right so so it's it's but it's doing all those things right based upon a command from Earth, but there's no direct supervision from Earth happening while it's going through all these things.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So, okay. So the flight planning is, is kind of, is the checks that you would do in that case. So I guess them not, uh, or APL, not, you know, being familiar with all of the aircraft checks, um, since, since they mostly work on spacecraft, they need like your input to understand uh, when the rotorcraft would be safe to actually fly. And what they- Um,
1: Well, so, so those pre-flight checks, those are, I think are pretty well understood, right? So I'm, I don't want to go saying that APL doesn't know how airplanes work in like that, right? They've got a lot of experience with, with things that fly here on earth as well, Mm -hmm. right? Through the sort of, and, and also sort of autonomous systems uh, for ocean. They have a long history of, of, of doing stuff like that. Um, I think Penn State's main contributions are really all about the atmospheric flight aspects of, of what's going on, um, right? So aerodynamics, for example, right? How mm-hmm. do you, you know, most spacecraft have got appendages sticking out all over the place and antennas here and there, right? Because aerodynamics doesn't matter in space, Right. right? Um, But when you're flying through a pretty thick atmosphere like Titan has, now all of a sudden aerodynamics is really, really important, right? Um, And the process of designing a vehicle that is as aerodynamic as we can possibly make it while still having all the bits and pieces on it that we need for both the scientists and for communications with Earth, right? That's the one of the bits where where we're contributing. Um, The other part is on the uh, sort of what we call what we in the rotorcraft community call aeromechanics, right? So that's the interaction between aerodynamics, the mechanical systems of the rotorcraft, plus all the sort of things that happen because of all those interactions, right? Though that, that is, is stuff that is sort of not necessarily inherent to what is, is sort of normally within and what, what happens with APL and engineering over there. Um, And on the sort of drone flight control side, right? That's, uh, is becoming sort of generally pretty well understood, right? Parts of it anyway, because anyone can go to Target, right? or, Or pick your favorite store, Amazon, right? And buy a little drone and it flies just great. Okay. Now in, in, in under some cases, right those drones fly just great because they don't weigh very much, and you've got a lot of extra thrust available from the propellers, right? So if something's wrong, you can just overpower it and, and, and you can do anything you want, basically with this thing. Things are a little bit more challenging when the drone gets big and heavy, right? Mm-hmm. So aerospace engineers call it the, the square cubed law, right. So mass increases with, by the cube of, of a dimension right? Because density times volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but strength and, uh, you know, forces like lift force or thrust force, those things all get bigger by the square of a dimension, right? So the thrust you can produce from a propeller, it depends on the, the area of the propeller. Um, and so once you start to get big, then your vehicle will start to get heavier faster than you can increase the thrust available, the lift available from things. And so then things start to get a little bit tricky once you reach a certain size um, and you have to start being kind of much more careful with, with the engineering work. Um, and and Dragonfly is certainly in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out Dragonfly is, is pretty similar in size to what, people are talking about for uh, some of of, of what we call the advanced air mobility vehicles. Right. Um, So, so it's essentially like just a very large drone Um, that that's, that's what Dragonfly really is. And so the size is now big enough that certain aspects of flight control start to become a little more challenging than they would be if you just had a little tiny, you know, football sized drone that, that you would just buy from Target or from Amazon flying around. Gotcha. And aerodynamic, uh, sorry, aeromechanics also becomes more challenging because you know vibrations start to get significant and things like that.
0: Gotcha. Um, I, I guess going off of that to kind of dive more into the 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 rotor design and and some of the challenges you guys are seeing. Uh, just for I guess listeners who aren't super familiar with the Dragonfly spacecraft, can you kind of give us a like a, and a brief overview of what the rotor design is now
1: for Dragonfly. Sure. So in, in terms of overall dimensions, right? Dragonfly is roughly the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, right? The, 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 the bug um, it has eight rotors and each rotor is a little over four feet in diameter. Uh, and the eight rotors are set up in four stacked pairs of what we called coaxial rotors. Um, And so if you were to look at it from above, right, it would look kind of like an X with two rotors at the end of of every X, right? So the the sort of drone people call this an X-8 configuration. Um, This, you know, having eight rotors gives us some redundancy. We can lose one of the rotors, right, because a motor fails or whatever, right? And we can still fly the aircraft safely. Um, And, It also makes for a configuration that's pretty compact and lets you fit nicely inside the the spacecraft that has to take us all the way from Earth to Titan. Um, The rotors, uh, right, so they're four feet diameter. Each rotor has two blades, um, and it's what we call a fixed pitch rotor, right? So a, a kind of conventional Helicopter here on earth every single rotor blade is articulated so you can change its pitch angle and that's how you do flight control on a rotor craft or on a standard helicopter. The way you do flight control with a drone is that you change the speed of each one of the rotors right, so the thrust that a rotor produces is proportional to the square of the speed that the rotor is is, is turning at, right? So, um, and so that's how we do our our flight control with drones. Um, And the drone you buy from Target, right, does its flight control in the exact same way. It does it by changing the speed of all the different rotors that are on there. Um, The sort of things that become challenging when things get really big, if you're doing your flight controls that way, um, is that the speed at which you can change the speed of the rotor right so in other words the acceleration that you can impose on one of the rotors to change its thrust right that gets limited by the amount of current you can pump into the motor and by how sort of heavy how much inertia the rotor itself has Um, and when the rotor starts to get really sort of heavy then it becomes challenged because the speed at which you can change the thrust that you're producing starts to become pretty close to the sort of natural dynamics of the vehicle. And you have to be really careful with your flight controls to make sure that you're not accidentally causing a bad interaction between those things. Um, And and that's actually why sort of these large helicopters, right, actually control the vehicle by, or one of the reasons why why they actually control that by changing the pitch of the blades, because that's something you can actually do pretty quickly. but when you've got a huge rotor, then it becomes difficult to quickly change the speed of, of the rotor. Um, and, and the sort of urban air mobility vehicles that we see proposed nowadays, a lot of them actually use change, in, their rotors are large enough that they do this by changing the pitch of the rotors, not, not just by changing speeds. Um, in the case of Dragonfly, we really want to avoid adding all these extra mechanical systems on there because those are, just, those are more things that can go wrong right? during the eight-year flight from Earth to Titan and in, in, in the sort of very, 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 very cold temperatures of Titan. Right? Um, so we want to minimize the number of mechanical systems, and so that's why we're still doing our flight controls just used by, by changing the, the speeds of all the different rotors. Um, but it means that we have to be really careful with doing our flight controls.
0: Based on that design, uh, what exactly do more of the aeromechanical challenges look like? Like, are um, given the the more dense atmosphere, is, is there? Do you guys have a lot greater issue of blade flapping, um, or uh, is it? Do you guys have? Um, have larger issues with like blade vortex interaction um, that that you have to to mitigate uh, with flight controls, or 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 maybe add other things into the design to kind of mitigate that.
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, right? And this is one of the one one of the things that actually makes flying on Titan kind of interesting and challenging. Um, So I'd mentioned earlier that because of Titan's dense atmosphere and because of its low gravity, the power you need to fly is really, is, is comparatively very low compared with here on earth, right? So, so, you know, one fortieth of the power required to hover on Titan because of its high density atmosphere and its low gravity. The thing that happens because of that is that you kind of build a rotor for flying on Titan and it's got its size that you need to fit inside the spacecraft and all the other constraints that we have on it, right? But we actually don't have to spin that rotor very quickly in order for us to fly on Titan, okay? And so now when we start to fly forwards, okay, We've got with every single rotorcraft, every helicopter, there's what you call the advancing side. So that's the side of the rotor where the, the blade is spinning in the forward direction of travel with respect to the rotorcraft. And then you have the, what we call the retreating side. That's the side where the rotor is, you know, because of the rotor spin, it's going backwards with respect to the, the, airplanes, uh, the helicopter's direction of travel. Um, so on the forward side, the speed of the air that the rotor sees is quite a lot higher than what the rotor sees on the retreating side. So that means you're producing a lot more lift on that forward side because the lift you produce is in part proportional to the square of the airspeed that that has. In the case of a helicopter, the way that you kind of handle that increased lift on the forward side is by reducing the pitch on that forward going rotor. So that reduces the, the angle of a tank that you see, and that's a way of reducing the lift force that gets produced. So you can balance the extra speed from the forward going rotor by reducing the the lift coefficient or reducing the pitch on that rotor uh, mechanically. In the case of these fixed pitch rotors like we have on Dragonfly and like you see on all the drones, right, you can't do that. And so the forward going rotor is producing a heck of a lot more lift than the backwards going rotor. And that causes vibration, right, because You've got a, you know, every single rotor blade is seeing as it goes around the cycle, around around its, its circle, sees lots of lift and then not much lift. And so that causes a, a, a torsional vibration at the hub of the rotor. And you mentioned blade flapping, right? That causes blade, what we call blade flapping. Um, and you have to be careful that the blade flapping that's caused by this kind of once around the cycle, right? That that frequency does not coincide with a natural vibration frequency of the blade, right? Because if those two things coincide, you get resonance and that's bad. Um, The way, and so the other thing that happens, right? So that's a kind of a vibration thing that shows up. and, and, And you see that vibration happens at the rotation frequency of the rotor, and it also shows up at the higher harmonics of the rotation of that rotor. Um, and so you've got to make sure that those vibrations, right, number one, don't coincide with the natural frequencies of the rotor itself, but also don't coincide with the natural frequencies of any of the rest of the structure on board the vehicle, right? So you have to go and do a really careful vibration analysis of the vehicle to make sure that none of the structural modes of the vehicle are going to coincide with that flapping frequency or that sort of driven uh, uh, vibration of, of that, that we get because of forward flight. The sort of tricky thing that shows up on Titan is that because our rotor speed is fairly low, because the atmosphere is dense and because gravity is small, then those vibration frequencies that are induced by that, you know, the the the, the aeromechanics of the whole system are fairly low. And you have to be really careful now to make sure that they don't show up at the same frequencies as your structure. Right. Um and uh yeah, so so that's kind of where a big challenge shows up. Um and it turns out too that the sort of amplitude of, of those vibrations also end up depending on something that we call advanced ratio, which is really the ratio of the rotor's rotational speed and the forward speed of the vehicle. Right. And so the advance ratio that we get on Titan, with its fairly low rotor speed, ends up being pretty high, um, and so you have to be careful that your vibrations that you get are not going to be super large. Um, and uh, yeah, so sort of all these things end up coming again. Yeah, now we've got eight rotors worth of vibrations that all have to, you know that are all coming into the vehicle somehow, right? Um, and so that ends up being something that that you have to be really careful about designing the vehicle, right? And so it's not just us, right, On with Dragonfly that have to address all these challenges. All the people that are busy designing vehicles for advanced air mobility, right? So that's like your Joby Aviation, um, Archer, right? All those companies that are working on sort of these the sort of air taxi-like vehicles, they have to address these same problems as well.
0: So to address that, does that become... Um... Like, are there things that APL kind of had to design it more into the uh, like the Dragonfly structure to maybe um, ad- adjust where some of those the the s- spacecraft modes were, or um, is it really just like you know this is the system we have right now? It's it's kind of designed as as best as we can, in, in terms of. Uh, yeah, in terms of like component placement and everything and so we just have to be really careful during the actual flight uh to make sure that you know the the speed of the rotors isn't causing that like have have there has there been things that APLs tried to design into that to into the spacecraft to kind of account for that?
1: Yeah, we're all of us now working really hard to try and uh design the whole flight vehicle. And so when I, so here's another thing, right? So when I say flight vehicle, I mean, dragonfly. (laughs) When the APL folks talk flight vehicle, sometimes it means like the whole spacecraft, right? So there's, so, so uh, yes. So so when I say flight vehicle, I mean, dragonfly, I mean, the the, the rotorcraft. Um, Yeah. So we're all working really, really hard to make sure that the structure the structural design of dragonfly is set up in a way that that we are not going to have these issues with vibration right um so that means doing things like figuring out how do we do vibration isolation right so on earth you would go and and install you know some vibration isolators right so that'd be some combination of a spring and a damper um, to help reduce vibration transmission into the rest of the vehicle um things are a little tricky on titan because it's really cold and so the things that we would normally use here on earth for vibration isolation like you know rubbery type materials viscoelastics right they're not going to work all that well because they're just going to freeze right and mm-hmm. you end up with a, with a hard thing that's not going to to do much with vibration isolation so we are now like and and we have been for a while now really focusing a lot of time on doing the structural design to make sure this doesn't happen. And and it's a two, it's it's sort of a a two-part pro, or not, it's not a two-part process, right? But it's a process that involves multiple disciplines of engineering, right? There's mechanical design of the vehicle, um, and then there's the aerodynamic design of the rotors, and those two things come together because the aerodynamics ends up affecting the vibration frequencies, and the mechanical design ends up affecting what the, the sort of natural modes are of the rest of the structure. OK, so we've got, you know, lots and lots of engineers from lots and lots of different disciplines all sitting together, you know, in a virtual room, uh, figuring out how to tackle these problems. Gotcha. So and, and you know, we're confident we'll get there. Right. But but it's it's solid, hardcore engineering work that has to go in there to, to make sure it all works.
0: I guess coming off of the the aeromechanics side and maybe more on the aerodynamic side um, with more of uh, this kind of like low viscosity, uh, you know, more dense atmosphere that you guys have on Titan. Are, are, there any, is there anything interesting aerodynamically that, uh, you guys have seen in designing dragonfly? Like, um, I don't, I think like ingenuity had a lot of sensitivity to, you know, edgewise flow on the rotors. Um, or I don't know if, if the, the, the wake that's created by by both of those rotors spinning kind of has any uh, negative effects?
1: Yeah, so we're doing right now a lot of, of computational fluid dynamics to look at the interaction um, between uh, the the flow going into and out of the rotors and the rest of the body of the vehicle, right? So that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is uh, we're using computational fluid dynamics to try and figure out how to Reduce the aerodynamic effects, or rather, to, to kind of create favorable aerodynamic effects from the body while we're busy flying uh, through Titan's atmosphere as well, right? So so we and, and so CFD that's the sort of short version for for computational fluid dynamics, um. And and you can think of CFD as being a, a virtual wind tunnel, essentially, right? So it's it's we we use it as though or a wind tunnel inside a computer. We use that to do our design process, analysis process, and then later on we'll go and take the kind of final design for Dragonfly, and actually put it in a wind tunnel, and that will verify and validate that we've done things right. And if it turns out that we did something wrong, then we'll be able to correct it before the thing is actually on its way. Right. Um, so we're using a combination of computational tools and experimental methods to, to go and and do the sort of design process for for the aerodynamics of Dragonfly. Um, the things that are kind of cool and interesting, right, that we that we are sort of worrying about is one, right. We want to try and set things up. So one thing that that is quite different, or sort of an implication again of the low gravity and high density, right, is that the sort of angle of of the body, right, the attitude of dragonfly while it's flying um, on. Titan is quite a bit more extreme than we see with kind of drones here on Earth and ingenuity on on Mars, right? So on Earth, if a drone is flying forwards, right, and it's it's going sort of at, at kind of what I would call normal speeds, right? It's kind of tilted nose down by, say, call it 10 degrees or so. For us to be flying the same speed on Titan, we end up being kind of nose down by 15 or so degrees, right? So there's mm-hmm. a big difference in attitude of the vehicle. And so we're we're busy working on aerodynamically designing the vehicle so that we have kind of nice aerodynamic properties at those kind of steeper nose down attitudes, and that ends up being pretty tricky. Um, mm-hmm because the more the thing is tilted nose down, right? Kind of the, the more of, of the things sort of back is exposed to the atmosphere, right? And so we have to be really careful with how we direct flow with a vehicle. And the other thing that happens is that there's interaction between the inflow and outflow from the rotors and the rest of the body, and we see interaction between the rotors themselves. And okay? so when we're near hover, right, or at hover, then the outflow from the upper rotor in a coax pair is going right through the lower rotor, okay. And when we're flying at, at forward flight speed, well, then you start getting at some point, the effect that the, the wake from the forward upper rotor ends up interacting with the lower rear rotor. Um, and so those are also things that we have to kind of be kind of careful about, both from the standpoint of flight control and, okay, so let's figure out how to design the vehicle to minimize the effects of, of those things while still making sure that we can fit inside the spacecraft that's got to take us from Earth to Titan, right? So that ends up being a pretty large sort of constraining space on us, right? And it's actually, right, it's, it's constraints that make engineering really, really interesting. If you could do anything you wanted to, well, then you know you would just do whatever and it wouldn't be hard, right? Mm-hmm. So, But it's because the constraints make it hard, that's what makes it a really cool and interesting engineering problem. Um, Yeah. So, and, and that is a case, right. Where we've got the aerodynamics people working really, really closely with the controls people, right. To try and make sure all that stuff works. And it turns out there the aerodynamics people have to work closely with the flight planning people. And because the better a job that we can do on the aerodynamic design of the vehicle, the less energy it's going to take us to fly a given distance, right. Because Mm -hmm. less drag on the body means less power required to fly. And we can fly a lot farther on a single charge so the the sort of aerodynamics ends up getting tied into the flight controls and also the flight planning side of things okay and every single one of the sort of sub-disciplines within aerospace engineering ends up being tightly coupled with all the other sub-disciplines of of aerospace engineering
0: so what are some of the ways that you guys have had to uh, at least with with the the body of dragonfly or or maybe even the the rotors and and spacing and, and whatnot. Um, what are some of the ways that you guys have had to have tried to kind of mitigate, uh, mitigate that and, and make everything more aerodynamic?
1: Yeah. So one of them is, okay, so can we design sort of fairings and things that we we put around the body of dragonfly to, to make it look as streamlined as possible? Right. Um, and at the same time all those fairings have to you know have spaces in them to let the antennas pop out and and we have to make sure that things like all the sort of scientific instruments have got room that they can still see the things that they need to see um and it still has to fit inside the spacecraft right and we've got this this the 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 mmrtg the multi-mission radio i thermal generator that that has to go and get installed in a certain way Right. And so those are all that's the sort of constraint space that we live within when we do it. Um, And then so we've been doing um, both uh, what we call parameter studies, right, where you would take a variable and change it a bunch of times and see what effect that has on the performance of the vehicle. We also end up running uh, and that gives us sort of an understanding of, okay, so sort of what does our design space look like? And how important are some of the design variables in the sort of overall performance of the aircraft, right? So that tells us something about okay, what do we really want to worry about and, and what things don't matter because changing them a lot doesn't do anything for us, right? So that tells us where to look for, for performance improvements. Um, and, and so those parameter size include things like so, you know, how far apart should the rotors be in a given rotor pair? Um, where should the rear rotors be placed in relation to the forward rotors and where can we place all four all you know the 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 four pairs of rotors in relation to the body of the whole vehicle um and so those are things that we've been going through we've been going through doing optimization studies of of what what does the you know we call it the motor arm that's like the strut that sticks out from the body of the vehicle that goes and and kind of holds the motors and rotors and transmits their forces into the rest of the body. What should that look like to maximize overall performance? Um, and there's a whole bunch of things that, that, that kind of come into all this, Right, sort of, sort of a bunch of effects that come out of it, right? If we design those rotor arms in a certain way, then when we're in forward flight, we can actually use them to generate lift, right? Which reduces the thrust that we need to keep the vehicle flying, which is great. The downside is, well, now when we're in hover, those things have been set up in a way to maximize performance for forward flight, but maybe they're hurting us a lot when we're in hover. And so now we have to start to play the the trade-off game, right. Or the optimization game between maximizing performance, of the vehicle over a whole mission, right. As opposed to maximizing performance for one phase of the whole flight. Um, And so, you know, that's a space where sort of, uh, design codes, both structural and aerodynamic and aeromechanic design codes show up plus algorithms that we can use to, to sort of run the optimization process where it's, you know, the, where the, the computer essentially is figuring out how do we change the design of the vehicle to maximize some overall performance reward.
0: So, so to, to kind of generate the, the whole like body design of, uh, of Dragonfly, I, I was curious on how, I guess the, the more of the social interactions or, or the, you know, discussions between you guys and APL looked like to kind of get there? Like, did they just come to you and say, okay, we have all of these components. It has to fit into a body somehow. Um, this is one way that, but then we also have to fit into this, this air, arrow shell. Um, so this is one way we were thinking of doing it and, but how would you fix it? Or yeah, like how, how did they kind of hand that Task off and say, okay, go make this aerodynamic.
1: Yeah. So, really, what happened, right, is, is so the, the mechanical design team at APL works really closely with the scientists to figure out, okay, where do we put all these science packages, mm-hmm. right? So, there's this sort of, you know, all the different science instruments have to go somewhere. They've got constraints based on things like, well, some packages have to be able to see the ground. Right. When we're sitting on the ground, some packages don't. Some things have to be able to be able to look upwards, right, at certain times. Right. So figuring out how all the science stuff fits together. That was all done at APL. And at the end of it, they come up with this sort of this sort of volume of space that's packed pretty much as tight as you can imagine, right? With stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So a combination of instruments and wiring and ducting. They have to worry about making sure that, that that parts that have to stay cool stay cool and parts that have to stay warm can stay warm. Okay. right. So so managing temperature inside the the vehicle is also a a big kind of non-trivial thing to get sorted out. Um, And so that sort of comes to us as this sort of skeleton almost right stuffed full with with the internal organs, right, of of dragonfly. And then we try to wrap a skin around it, Mm. um, right, or wrap the flesh around it in a way that that is sort of as, as lightweight as we can possibly make it right. And also as aerodynamic as possible. Right. So the, we have sort of an inner constraint, which is the skeleton of the vehicle and all of its internal organs and our outer constraint is being able to fit inside the, the aeroshell, right. The thing that takes us from earth to Titan and then through Titan's sort of outer atmosphere to, to where we start flying.
0: Gotcha. I will ask, I'll ask a few more. Cause I, I want to be, um, I do want to, to be considerate of your time. Um, so one thing I was curious about is so for ingenuity, they ended up making like an environmental chamber so they mm-hmm. could test uh, the vehicle in Mars conditions. Do you guys have something like that for Dragonfly um, that will kind of simulate Titan conditions, or, or do you have to kind of do like a, a piecemeal sort of test campaign with um, with different components and then rely a lot more heavily on simulation?
1: We're doing a bit of everything as it turns out. So, so NASA does have a wind tunnel uh, that we can both cool down to, to very close to Titan temperature and we can pressurize it to so that we reach Titan density, okay? So we can actually take size representative components of Dragonfly and test them at full size in this particular wind tunnel, right? So, so we're matching conditions almost exactly. Um, and so that's really cool, right? So so we we can and and the other thing that we can do is take kind of a subsized vehicle and properly scale the dynamics of, of the airflow um, and place that full vehicle inside the wind tunnel and test everything that way too, right? So so we're able to test in a wind tunnel at very close to Titan conditions. Um, and then we'll be able to test all the way up to you know the, the, the same flight speeds that we expect dragonfly to do while it's flying on Titan. right? So we'll be able to be very, very close to to Titan conditions. Um and that will tell us an awful lot about, you know, basically what that's gonna do is make sure that we're right, right, about all <laughs> the, the, the analytical stuff that we've been doing up till up till then. Um we can test here on Earth using scaled versions of, of drones, right? So for example, we have, we, we built here a roughly half scale version of Dragonfly and we've been flying it around. APL has a slightly larger scaled version of a drone that they're flying. Um, and so we can use that to, to help test the flight controls that we'd be using um, because we can scale the dynamics of, the, of, of them fairly closely. And by playing a little bit with the ratios of vehicle mass to rotor areas, right? We can match disc loading at least, right? So so, so many things will match, but not quite everything, but that will be enough for us to validate things like the control algorithms that, that, that we wanna use. Um, and then after that, it's also a lot of simulation, right? And and simulation happens at many, many sort of different levels of or orders of, of fidelity, right? It's everything from, the models that are similar to what you would see in kind of a, you know, a flight simulators, like the, like you can fly on, on your computer at home, uh, all the way up to really, really detailed computational fluid dynamic simulations that have to run on one of NASA's supercomputers, mm-hmm. okay. So, and it's kind of everything in between there is, is happening as well, right? And, and, and when we kind of see that the results of all those things match, right? That's, when we, that's how we get confidence that, that, that things are actually going to work on Titan, right? So it's a combination of, of testing in wind tunnels where we can very, very nearly match Titan conditions, okay? Testing with scaled drones that we're just flying around here in, in Earth's atmosphere, plus the combination of, of computer models that happen from sort of desktop level stuff all the way to supercomputer level stuff, right? All those things matching then will tell us, okay, yes, we've got this down, right? We've got it figured out. Um, if we see a discrepancy somewhere in there, right, that's when we know, okay, we're going to have to figure out why is there a discrepancy. Maybe it's because there's a scaling issue and it's not a problem. Maybe it's because uh, there's some effect that that you don't see on one level of simulation that you see up here. And now we know that we, you know, how to take it into account. Okay. Uh, or maybe it's, hey, we have a mistake somewhere and we've got to go find it and fix it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So any one of those things could be true. Right. Um, but the fact that we're doing modeling and testing at all those different levels, right. That will make those things pop out for us. Nice.
0: That's, that's really cool. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I, I think dragonfly launches in 2027 right now.
1: I think that is the current schedule.
0: So yeah, lots of, um, lots of is there a lot of testing planned like in like in the near term, or is that still kind of way out?
1: Yeah, we've um, got uh, there, there is currently there's uh, like the drone flying is happening. There's a lot of the computational work that that's that's has been happening as and will continue to happen for the next several years. Uh, and the the wind tunnel testing is kind of, you know, on the schedule. We've done some wind tunnel testing already. Um, and, and there's more kind of on the books. So lots more on the books. Nice.
0: And is that wind tunnel, is that at Langley or is that something? Yeah, that's at Langley, that wind tunnel,
1: so, and then that wind tunnel, it's the, the transonic dynamics test tunnel, the the TDT, it was designed really so that people can do flight testing of, or rather, sorry, wind tunnel testing of really large aircraft, Hmm. Um, and so by running densities up really high, that lets you test a smaller model of the aircraft in, in that particular wind tunnel. So it, it was used to test things like, you know, Boeing 767 aircraft at that high altitude. So.
0: Nice. That's that's awesome. <laughs> I guess as a as a last question, what has been one of your favorite memories from working on on Dragonfly, or at least uh, a memory that just sticks out to you as meaningful?
1: Um, One thing that I think is really cool. So, so, I mean, all of us are super excited about this, right? Everyone from sort of the, the, the sort of, you know, quote unquote, airplane people like me, right. To the planetary scientists. One thing that's really cool is seeing how kind of all of us we're all learning new stuff all the time, right. About sort of how the, the other half lives essentially. Right. Um, And sort of seeing the excitement on the part of planetary scientists while we were flying our, you know, half scale drone around and, and everyone is super, because now you, you, you can kind of see something of it, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of this thing that we'd all been working on. Um, and, and sort of seeing how all the bits are fitting together and, and the, the, yeah, really it's, it's the, it's always great to be working on a big team. Right. Um, and everyone on the team is, is working like crazy to make this whole thing work. Right. Even through all the challenges that we've had with COVID and everything. Right. So yeah, uh, right, we kind of lose some of, we've lost some of the face-to-face, so we end up having to do it all over Zoom, um, and, and we're all really looking forward to being able to spend more time face-to-face as well um, through this whole thing. So, yeah, I guess the, the big excitement for me is, is sort of learning all this new stuff, right? And the other thing that's super cool is, you know, we're, we're busy doing really difficult engineering on a project that is going to let people discover new things about, like, the origins of life right? That's really what this whole mission is about. It's figuring out, so where did life come from? You know, why is it that, that, you know, we're here on earth, right? Why, why did, why did we get so lucky with earth essentially, right? That's kind of the, the sort of question that, that we're trying to figure out. Um, and being able to do that with something that's flying around is awesome.
0: I know. I think that's a great memory and and I, I definitely, or I think that that's a great, <laughs> that's a great point. Um, and I definitely resonate a, a lot with that too. Uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why i I picked space in the first place. and um it was one of the the cool things about the the cube that I worked on because it was a infrared imaging mission um, that uh, was meant to study urban heat islands. So it was like, you know, we're all learning about spacecraft. We don't know what we're doing, but this is fun. Uh, yeah. and it's a, a mission that's going to like actually have, or you know, if it works would have a big impact on, on, uh, just everyday life. So like that was, you know, the, the cool thing and the main driver for a lot of us working on that project, um, yeah. as undergrads, but yeah.
1: cool.
0: But awesome. Um, I, I think that's a wonderful way to end this podcast episode. So thank you again, very much for, for doing this with me. And it was, yeah, this was really cool. I have like, Billions of more questions, but um, I could I could easily, yeah. But I want to be considerate of your time. I I don't want to take up your whole day with um, bombarding bombarding you with questions on dragonflies. So
1: yeah, well, so uh, yeah, you should also talk to people who are doing things like trying to navigate this thing on Titan, because that's also like a whole topic in and of itself. Is how do we know that we're getting to the spot that we're trying to get to? Mm -hmm. We don't have GPS on Titan, so we have to navigate a different way, which is cool.
0: That's all for this week's episode of the Art of Space Engineering. Thank you all so much again for your continued support of this podcast. This is really my way of just trying to give something back to the aerospace community and make something that can be beneficial for people of all ages and disciplines. I try to make new episodes of this podcast as often as I can and make the content shared on here as useful to you as I possibly can as well. So if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to connect with me via email or LinkedIn, you can find both of those resources in the podcast description. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who may be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source or on Facebook to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.